1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. How many days do you remember in your life when the world actually changed? I mean, most days are pretty much like each one is like the one before, and most changes that are of any significance are gradual. When I think back at my life, I think about a a few things. They're all about 20 years ago. The first one was uh, Y2K. Everybody thought that that was going to be a big deal. And uh, I remember uh, my father-in-law had stockpiled food and uh, ammunition and firewood and was ready for all the computers to crash and society as we know it uh, crumbling at the stroke of midnight on ni- yeah, in 1999. But we had a pretty much normal New Year's Eve and a pretty quiet New Year's Day. And when businesses opened the next day, it was, it was like a non-event. It was, like, it was no different than 1999, even though we were living in a new millennia. <clears throat> the calendar's changed, not much else. Uh, a little more than a year later, my life really changed. Uh, on September 7th, 2001, when Baron was born, I became a dad. And um, my life is still changing because of that, our, our family life, you know. Um, but, and the world is still changing a little bit. Uh, but it was, I think it was far more profound for uh, Betsy and me and Baron uh, than for, you know, the world. A few days after that uh, was 9-11-2001. Baron was four days old. That was a day. That was a big day. These uh, terrorists who were angry at our country uh, for being wealthy, immoral, and arrogant, they flew planes into buildings, and a lot of people died. It seemed like a big, a big deal at the time, and um, I know for like the kids that were orphaned that day, that was a completely life-changing day. But with a little bit of historical perspective, 20 years later, actually, the world didn't change all that much that day. Certainly not as much as the attackers wanted it to. The attackers are all gone. Their movement is still around, but hopefully weaker than it was then, I guess. I don't know. It's about the same, really. Since then, we've heard heard that event become uh, something that people compare to. So uh, even recently, um, I heard the attack in October in Israel uh, from Gaza was referred, people were referring to it as Israel's 9-11. And that's not the first time that people have compared some terrible act to 9-11. And then when you look back at previous generations before us, Pearl Harbor was a 9-11 moment. In fact, I, I don't know if there's any generation anywhere in the world in hi- human history who has not experienced some sort of 
terrible event like that. Um, it's because the world is cyclical. Things keep happening, even though uh, we try to prevent them from ever happening again. Something like, something happens again. As uh, the book of Ecclesiastes puts it, there's nothing new under the sun, or uh, even under the, the darkness if you live in Fairbanks in December. But today I get to talk to you about one of my, two verses from one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, maybe the very top favorite, I'm not, not totally sure. And Paul wrote this, this letter of the Bible about 20 years after the events that he's talking about. And these were days that the world actually really changed. And the change was actually good news for all of us and the world. <clears throat> it was a revolutionary change. So, thanks for the opportunity. I want to nerd out about each word, since there are only two verses. Um, do, we have the, uh, do we have the passage up there? There we go. <clears throat> Paul says, uh, we're going we're gonna to start on the second line here. For Christ died for our sins. Christ is the first word. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It was a title that means the, the anointed one. And it was used uh, in the Old Testament. Prophets, priests, and kings were anointed. Um, the Jews of that time were looking forward to an anointed, an anointed one, a Messiah, who was going to solve their problems, notably that they were, uh, they were not free. They were under Roman rule. <clears throat> So right off the bat, this is an important part of it. We're not just talking about Jesus as a human figure or a man, but as the Messiah. Second, he died. The Messiah died. Now, the fact that Jesus died doesn't seem to be very controversial. But that he was the Messiah and that he died, that's a little bit uh, hard for Jews of that time to swallow. Nobody expected the Messiah to die. In fact, if he died, it proved he wasn't the Messiah. Um, he was supposed to lead his people to victory, not be killed by the enemy. Even uh, about 500 years later, a uh, French uh, king who was kind of Viking style at the time, the French were barbarians, um, Clovis, uh, as a baby Christian, he said, you know, if I, had I been there with my brave Franks, I would have avenged his wrongs. He's like, what? Jesus died? No. If we were there, we would have fixed that. Uh, he, he was kind of a baby Christian. He didn't get it. <clears throat> but that's an important part of this. Christ died. And he died for. For is a tiny word. Uh, the only Greek word I'm going to throw at you today is, is this word, huper. Uh, it's the root of uh, many words in English that have hyper in them. It's a very flexible word that uh, shows the uh, relation between two things as uh, one thing is over, like 
spatially over another thing or metaphorically um, related to that thing in a sort of uh, upper way. <laughs> Prepositions are fun. For what? For our sins. Sins of sins. Could we could we could expand that for hours? Sins of commission and omission. Bad things we've done. Good things we haven't done. The time I said a little bit too much when I was arguing with somebody. The time I didn't say enough when I could have made a difference. Private and public, sins against God, the heart and mind betrayals I keep most secret, sins against family when I hurt the ones that I love the most, sins against the world when I either worship it or abuse it, when I become wealthy, immoral, and arrogant, or I seethe with resentment and hate against those who are more wealthy, immoral, and arrogant than I am. And if I pause for a moment, I'm sure you can remember some specific sins of your own. He says Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. This is the phrase that gets repeated. It's emphasized. Of course, he's talking about the Old Testament because the New Testament didn't exist yet. He was writing it. <laughs> but the scriptures are how we understand the meaning of these raw events of somebody dying and being buried and rising. We realize that God told us beforehand what it was going to happen and what it was going to mean. Paul was a trained rabbi, but this was not obvious to him. It took... It took the Spirit's revelation on the road to Damascus, and it took the Christian community when he got to Damascus to help him understand what the scriptures were already saying. Uh, another example I love is uh, in Caiaphas, the high priest. He, was, um, he ironically came to the right conclusion, but he didn't understand it at all. When he said, you know, it's better for us that one man die for the people than that the whole, whole nation perish. And that was his argument for why they should, they should put Jesus to death uh, when they were debating his case. And John says he was actually a prophet. He was prophesying. He just didn't know it. The disciples, even after Jesus explained it over and over, they didn't seem to get it. But later after they, were, they had some time to reflect on everything that had happened, and with the Holy Spirit's illumination and the teaching of the risen Jesus, they realized that the scriptures are full of promises, like in Isaiah 53, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And that's just one verse we could go on for days. I found at least 12 metaphors in Scripture uh, pretty quickly that 
unpack this relation of Christ dying for our sins. For, that one word for is uh, explained and prefigured in uh, at least 12 ways. First, at the very beginning, when God set a boundary and said, when you eat fruit from this tree, you will certainly die, and we did it anyway. Christ died for transgression. When we murdered our brother in the field and deserved death, Christ died for retribution. When we realized that, like Isaiah, I have filthy lips and I'm from a filthy-lipped people, Christ died for our cleansing. Though our sins are like scarlet, if we're sprinkled with his blood, it makes us whiter than snow. When we are sick with sin, when we're messed up and weak in body and mind and spirit, Christ died for our healing. When we had run up an unpayable bill that we could never repay, Christ died for our debt. When we were captured and held hostage because of our sin, Christ died. And we had no hope of escape or bail. Christ died as a ransom. When we were enslaved, exiled in a foreign land and under the tyranny of sin, Christ died for freedom so that we could return to our promised home, our promised land with him. Even now in daily life when our sin can be an active force within us that needs to be killed, Christ died for mortification. And we're just, we haven't even gotten to this, all the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. At least, uh, I mean, there were many different types of sacrifices and Christ uh, handles them all. They're all examples of what he did when he died for our sin. The, uh, when we were guilty and our sin was exposed, Christ died for an offering of atonement, which means covering. When we had broken relationship and been at war with God and other people, Christ died for a peace offering to bring peace. When, because of our sin, in sort of a, a fairy tale thing, uh, a fairy tale justice moment, God deserved to take every firstborn son. Um, it kind of reminds me of Rumpelstiltskin. Anyway. Um, anyway. When because of our sin, God deserved every firstborn uh, in the Passover, Christ died as an offering for redemption to redeem the firstborns. When God deserved the first and best of everything, Christ died as the first fruit offering, the first and the best. The day Jesus died for our sins, the world changed. All of a sudden, there was new, there's something new. There's bottomless forgiveness instead of guilt. There was an end to the cycles of vengeance and peace for the wars within and without. Paul says after he died, he was buried. Also, should not be controversial. But it's an opportunity to notice that uh, we actually have a persistent error in our, in our cultural uh, expectations about what happens after someone dies. And uh, it's very unbiblical. Um, Jesus did not die and go to heaven. Paul doesn't say he died for our sins and went to heaven. When he died, he went to the tomb. Now, 
death wasn't the end. He wasn't just completely extinguished and destroyed like many people think happens at death. But he also didn't seem to turn into an unbodied, incorporeal spirit or a ghost or a memory that somehow gave inspiration to his followers. He was dead in the tomb, and it was like sleep. Uh, Paul goes on in the rest of this chapter to explain all the ways that our resurrection, well, our death and our resurrection are going to be like his death and resurrection. Which gets us to the next phrase, he was raised on the third day. Paul doesn't think that the basic fact of it is particularly uh, it, he, he seems to imply in the next few verses that the number of people who saw Jesus raised from the dead is good evidence that he was actually raised from the dead. He doesn't seem to think that that's like a controversial concept. He seems to think that there's enough people who witnessed it um, that there's, there's enough evidence out there. But, he, you know, as I said, he didn't believe it at first. Many didn't believe it. Many continue to have trouble believing that, right? That's the hard part of this phrase, to believe. But it's important, again, to, to note that he's talking about a, a body that's alive again. It's resurrection. It's not like a, a ghostly, uh, disembodied life. This was a special, uh, pivotal event. It wasn't a sort of regular miracle like some of the other people who were raised from the dead, like Lazarus. Uh, many Jews of that time, the Pharisees in particular, um, but not the Sadducees, believed that God was going to raise everyone from the dead. But that, that was something that was going to happen at the end of time. He would, he would particularly raise all the people who were martyred, uh, and then their martyrdom wouldn't have been in vain. Um, but the idea that one person, the Messiah, was to be raised right now was not something that any Jew was expecting. Many Gentiles believed in eternal souls, but uh, they were locked in Hades, and they had lots of stories for what happened when your, your soul would be stuck in Hades forever, and there's, everybody knew it was a one-way street. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that Jesus rose, that he rose again. He was alive again. His, present, his, his body um, was present. He did things. He saw people. He touched things. He ate. He eventually, his body ascended to heaven. Uh, so he would be one of the few people who did that, like Enoch or uh, Elijah. And his body is not anywhere else right now. It's not like he left his body behind. But his body is alive somewhere forever, and he's coming back someday in that body. And in the rest of this passage that I, that I love, the rest of this chapter, Paul goes on in detail to talk about how our resurrection, what we have to look for, is, is like Jesus' resurrection. It has a profound meaning for the whole world because uh, 
It's a, it's a first fruit or deposit of that final resurrection. And it, it shows that the one who created the world will make a new creation. He'll, make, he'll renew by recreating and he'll fix what, what was wrong, dying unjustly. In Jesus' case, he will make it come untrue as uh, Sam the Hobbit said, everything sad will become untrue. The, um, of course, this is something that's going to happen in the future, but there's, in Jesus, it has already started happening. The spring has already started, even though winter is not finished yet. The meaning of, of the resurrection by itself gives us this rich, uh, world-changing, new, uh, new view of life. And he goes on in the rest of this chapter to, to elaborate that. The resurrection gives us eternal consolation from suffering. He doesn't say that the Christian life won't have suffering but it won't be meaningless and it won't and eventually it will be over and it will be replaced with life it, the resurrection means that we have eternal victory that the battle has already been won and, and even the worst thing that any enemy could throw at us even death is uh, not going to keep us down it gives us eternal meaning and Paul even flips it the other, the other way in this chapter and says that without this, actually, the Christian life is meaningless. It's all in vain. But because we can look forward to being raised, we, uh, the things that we do, even our day-to-day life, our relationships with each other, they actually matter because they are going to last. And it also promises eternal power the, the Spirit's empowering presence gives us bottomless energy if we're open to it, if we're willing to ask for it. Not just to rise from the dead after, uh, after we die, uh, but to live the new creation life now. Paul says uh, this... this Benefit this power of the resurrection is available to us as Christians, not just at the end of time when, uh, when our broken, dead bodies are raised again, but even now, that that resurrection life from the future becomes present to us now. Uh, he says it more succinctly in other books. This, this whole chapter, I recommend, it's a whole chapter about this, but in 1 Thessalonians, he says, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And in Romans 8, he says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And we have a lot of work to do to actually abandon some of our cultural ideas about um, disembodied, going to heaven when you die, um, the spiritual being more important than the body. 
and to thoroughly believe what, what these passages like these plainly explain. Because death won't be the end of, of this body, this body that you're here present with me in this room or listening to a recording later. This body, your physical ears, will be alive again, will hear his voice, his voice vibrating real air. Your eyes will not only see him, but feel his fingers wipe away every tear. Your physical eyes, made again, made pure, made new. Ecclesiastes said there's nothing new under the sun, but Paul says if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. The day Jesus rose, the world changed again. Not just bottomless forgiveness, but bottomless life and the first day of a new creation that continues in all of us. And again, Paul repeats it was according to Scripture. Again, from that same passage in Isaiah 53. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And again, we could go on and on, but for your follow-up, I recommend these whole chapters, the rest of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, Isaiah 53, Psalm 16, Romans 8, and Revelations 21. If you're looking for something to read this week, it's deeply, deeply, profoundly life-giving. <clears throat> this passage ends with a comma, but we haven't talked about the beginning yet. We're almost done, though. Paul is reminding, in the whole chapter, he's reminding the Corinthians about the basic gospel because he wants to correct their misconceptions about the resurrection, which have led to error. And really understanding this is going to empower them to persevere. At the, the last verse of the chapter, he says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And that's really what I want to encourage you with. If you understand this, it, if it's not true, we're just all wasting our time. But if it is true, nothing, none of this is in vain. Okay, so back to the first line, real quick. He says, we'll, we'll do it in reverse order. He's passing on what he received. How did he receive it? He received it from the Lord, from other Christians, from Scripture. Have you received it? Are you still receiving it? Have you received it from other Christians, from, from people who witness to you and tell you, no, this is really, this is, that's really what it means. Have you received it from Scripture? Have you looked it up and done your own 
uh, research. Uh, one, one of the most life-changing things in my life was when I was 16, and this uh, cute girl I knew, who I'm now married to, is uh, she, she uh, invited me to read the Bible starting in Matthew instead of Genesis and made all the difference. Anyway, has God spoken to you? He might not blind you on the way to Damascus like he did for Paul. That's pretty rare, apparently. But he has ways of speaking, and, and I think you, in some way you have to hear from him uh, somehow to be convinced of this. But if you ask, he has a funny way. There are many stories of uh, people who asked him to show himself or prove himself if he was really real, and he does. We have right here uh, a tiny drama that we do every week where we receive communion. And this is a way of putting, the, the church was very wise, well, because Jesus told them to. <laughs> uh, that we don't just receive with our minds or our hearts, but we receive with our tongues. I like to think of the cracker uh, representing Jesus' death and that I'm partaking of his death and the juice as his blood partaking in his life, being raised again in his, his new life. That's just one way that we receive. Second, Paul says it's first importance. <clears throat> you know, this was this was actually an awkward thing to build your religion on. It was difficult for Jews and people like the Vikings to swallow. It's inconvenient. For one thing, like everyone, not just modern people, but everyone knows that death is a one-way street. People don't rise from the dead. People knew that somebody who got assassinated by his enemies and tortured to death was not a good leader. But Paul doubles down and says, no, this is essential. And without this, our faith and our life, our preaching is useless. Christianity would be meaningless and pathetic. Now, Hypothetically, if you were wanting to invent a new religion and talk people into it, this would not be a good move. It would be a bad strategy. Uh, it would be much better to say something more acceptable to Jews, like say Jesus was a martyr prophet, uh, but God was still going to raise a new Messiah. Or to say uh, to the Greeks, they had a few myths about eternal spirits uh, escaping Hades and say, oh, yeah, uh, something like that happened. Or if this is going to be part of your new religion, can't you at least make this part optional instead of making it the very center and saying that it's all useless without it? But even, even though that's what it he's saying here, Christianity actually spread like wildfire throughout the whole world and continues to spread, and even now billions of people, about one-third of the people who are currently alive, believe that Christ 
died for their sins and rose again. And the simplest explanation is that this awkward thing to build your new religion on was true. And if it's true, it's everything. It reconfigures how we read scripture, how we see the world, how we live our lives. It reconfigured how um, the Christians saw Jesus' birth. They saw, oh, even, even the birth was a little death as the pre-incarnate son of, of God uh, who had every privilege um, loved by the Father gave all of that up to become a little baby, a little tiny mini-death. But it was also a tiny new creation. <clears throat> this new creation affects our past, future, and present. We have bottomless forgiveness for the past. We have the hope of eternal real life in the future. And we have ongoing forgiveness and the first fruits of new creation in the present. It includes and empowers all of our life, our family, our work, and ministry. And just one detailed example to put some personality on it. We're all dealing with the, in the bleak midwinter right now, right? We've got a few more days until the shortest day. I will say that it can be life-threatening. I mean, our, the place that we live in and love, most of us, some of us, <laughs> is, is trying to kill us. And it can be life-threatening. And you might need Jesus and a doctor if it's life-threatening. <clears throat> but if you have the garden variety seasonal blues, how does this matter? How does it help you? First thing, you know, I need more rest in the winter. Um, maybe, a, maybe an hour more every night compared to the summer. I was actually, this summer, I was having sleeping problems because I was sleeping more than I needed to, and then I, every second day, I would not be able to sleep. Um, not now. Just sleep and sleep. But can I not just sleep, but rest in Jesus' completed work on the cross? Um, can I rest like he was asleep in the tomb, or that Paul says, we will sleep before we are changed into our new bodies? Can I rest in being forgiven and rest in hope for the springtime of new creation instead of just sort of bleh? And then beyond that, after my extra hour of sleep is complete, if the spirit of who raised him from the dead dwells in me, can I rely on that spirit to actually get me out of bed and lead me and empower me to do a new creation type of life? Finally, Paul says, I del delivered this on. We're all stewards of this too. If we've received it, if we put it first, we've got to be... Uh, delivering it to others. Who? Who does God have for you to deliver this to? Um, maybe you will start with the ones closest to you, your family, your 
coworkers, Fairbanks, Alaska, the world. This is good news, and it continues to change the world. I want to end with this um, quote that just sums up, sums up everything I've been talking about. Christianity, you see, isn't a set of ideas. It isn't a path of spirituality. It isn't a rule of life. It isn't a political agenda. It includes and indeed gives energy to all those things. But at its very heart, it is something different. It is good news about an event which has happened in the world an event because of which the world can never be the same again. And those who believe it and live by it will, thank God, never be the same again either. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for dying, for rising again. We pray that you would, that you would teach us what this means, that you would apply it to our lives, that your Holy Spirit would help us to put it first, <clears throat> and that we might live every day in your forgiveness, your bottomless forgiveness, and the bottomless power of your new creation. We pray that you take that, that resurrection that you promise, that, that new life, and that you'd give it to us now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.